Well, good morning. You can tell we're getting close to spring break because guys are missing. I get, I get asked every year, why, why don't we break for spring break? Because if we break for spring break, you don't come back. So we will not break for spring break. We're going to keep going. But uh, as we get closer to Easter, this happens every year. Um, guys start smelling the barn and they, they stop showing up. So if, if you know of somebody missing from your table, harass them. You know, get, get them back here. We've got three weeks left after this week. And then we'll, we'll have wrapped up the book of Genesis. So this morning we're going to be in chapters uh, 42 and 43. And we're continuing the study of uh, the life of Joseph. So let me pray for us, and we're going to jump right into it. Well, Father, we come to you this morning, and we are grateful for this opportunity to study your word. We're uh, thankful for the food, thankful thankful for this place where we can gather and meet and um, fellowship and grow deeper in our knowledge of your word and our relationship with you. And I pray that that would happen today as we unpack these two chapters. Lord, show us you, but also show us how you work through people like us and how you've chosen to work out your will through men. And you've been doing it for centuries. You continue to do it. May may we be the right kind of men, Father, that could carry out your will in this world at this moment where we live and that we might make a difference. And so we pray for this day, pray for this morning, and we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to continue in the life of Joseph. I, I told you last week one of the things that I want us to do is not get obsessed with uh, studying Joseph, but look at the God of Joseph. And yet it's interesting, these two chapters of of probably more than any of the chapters we've looked at thus far in the book of Genesis really focus on men, the character of men. And we're going to see it in Joseph as we continue to look at his life, but we're also going to see it in his brothers. They're going to appear back in the scene, and we're going to get a, an exposure to the life of these, these guys, these 10 men, the 10 men who sold their brother into slavery, and how God is not yet done with them. God's going to continue to work in them. Because you've got to remember, they're sons of Jacob too. Uh, they're heirs of the promises of God, and God's going, going to use each one of them in a major way. So we, we're looking at Joseph but remember that they think he's dead. And that's why I titled this lesson, Dead Man Walking. Uh, in, in these two chapters, they're not going to recognize him. They're not going to know it's their brother, but they're literally standing before the brother that they sold into slavery. And it, he's like a walking ghost. He's, he's walking with them, talking with them. He's uh, giving orders to them, and they don't know it's him, but it's almost kind of a... Uh, an ironic joke on God's part that he does this this way, that he brings these men to Egypt to meet their brother, who they don't recognize, but they're interfacing once again, and it's going to expose some pretty incredible things in their lives, and especially in their hearts. So here's how we ended last week, chapter 41. When the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. You remember that he got elevated to the second highest position in the land by Pharaoh because he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And then he revealed the seven-year plan for how to handle the coming famine. And Pharaoh was so impressed that he said, man, there's nobody wiser than this kid in all my realm. So he puts him in this position of authority. He rewards him with jewelry and clothes. And then he puts him in a chariot and he parades him through the streets of, of Egypt and commands everybody to bow down to him. And so now here we are, and the famine has come. So that means we're seven years later. There's seven years of plenty. So Joseph's been in this position for seven years, and now the famine has come. The second seven years of that 14-year time period. And that's what happens. And it says the Famine is severe where? In the land of Egypt. Then it goes on and says, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. So from all over the world at that time, they're also going through a famine. It's like Moses is kind of extending the circles out from Egypt 
out to the other nations, and they're affected by the famine. And because of Joseph's actions given to him by God, they have plenty of food to spare. Remember, he was collecting 20% of all grain, all produce for seven years, putting it in storehouses. He's selling it to the people, and now he's selling it to the nations because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, this is where Moses is connecting the dots, and he's taking us from Egypt outside of Egypt, and for a particular reason. It's to reveal that God has a plan, and the plan is far greater than just Egypt. Joseph is not there just to protect the people of Egypt. He's there to protect his own people. That's the whole reason he's there. God has put this plan into place. He was born for this reason. He's in this position of power for this reason because it's all part of God's sovereign plan. We've talked about that for weeks. And this guy, this young man who arrived in Egypt at 17, is fulfilling all of God's will and all of God's promises. And that's pretty amazing to think of that, that God chose a 17-year-old and he's going to use him to accomplish his divine plan for the salvation of not just Egypt, but of Jacob and all of his family and ultimately the world. There's a lot of Jesus in Joseph. Uh, if, you, if you look closely, you're going to see kind of um, illustrations of, evidence of, foreshadowings of Jesus, the Savior, the, the unwanted son who shows up and is going to save his people. There's, there's a, uh, a type of Jesus in Joseph, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning, but as you look at his life, keep looking for little glimpses of Jesus, because this guy is the grand, great-grandson of Abraham, and God made a lot of promises to Abraham, one of them being in chapter 12, verse 3, when he first called him out of Ur, he said, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. A blessing to who? The nations. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that now here's this kid, Joseph, who happens to be a descendant of Abraham, and God seems to be fulfilling, at least in part, this, this promise, right? That he's there and he's done some things to set up Egypt to be a blessing to the nations. But it's really not Egypt, right? It's Joseph. Had Joseph not shown up, none of the wise men, none of the magicians would have come up with this plan. As a matter of fact, they would not have been ready for the famine. It was Joseph, because God put him there, who's blessing the nations. And it's important to understand that when God gave that promise to Abraham, it had yet to be fulfilled, right? Nothing had yet happened to fulfill that. He didn't have a son. He had a barren wife. He had no descendants. He's still in Ur at that moment. He's not living in the land of Canaan. And so now we're, here, we're decades and decades later, and God is starting to fulfill, at least in part, this promise. Here's what we know. When Jacob arrives, and we're going to see that next week, when Jacob brings his family into Egypt because of the famine, there's only about 70 of them. The scriptures make it really clear. So even when they show up, it's a partial fulfillment of that promise, right? It's going to take years before they become a great nation. It's going to take around 400 years for that to happen. But this is the beginning of that part of the plan, this phase of the plan. They're going to show up, they're going to be few in number, and they're going to be non-influential. Seventy people are not going to influence Egypt, all right? They're not going to have an impact. There's not enough of them. You know, five of us could decide we're going to move to a foreign country and we're not going to have a major impact on that country. We can bring our thoughts, we can bring our politics, we can bring everything we know and we're going to not make an iota of difference. But what's incredible is that God is fulfilling, again, part of this promise through this kid Joseph. Are they influential? Yes. Even before Jacob gets there, they're influential. Why? Because of Joseph. Remember what it says, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt. That's pretty influential, right? That's a lot of power, as much power as Pharaoh. He says, you will have as much power as I do. He gave him his signet ring, his, his sign of authority. Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. That's incredible. He's 30 years old when this happens. 
That's a lot of power. That's a lot of authority. He's having an influence, a major influence, and he's a descendant of Abraham. Genesis 41, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph. I love how Moses keeps bringing the focus on to Joseph. They didn't come to Pharaoh. They came to Joseph. Why? Because Joseph held the purse strings. He was the key to getting the grain that every nation needed because the famine was severe over all the earth. So God is blessing the nations through this young man, Joseph. He's, he's fulfilling the promises made to his great-grandfather, Abraham. We're beginning to see that happen. Now we know ultimately the blessings of the nations is going to come through Jesus Christ, but Abraham, or Joseph, is a type of Christ. This is at least a foreshadowing of some of what Jesus is going to do for the nations as well, but in a totally different way. Remember he said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what's amazing about that is that even the nations of Canaan are going to be blessed. Why? Because we're going to find out that the famines in Canaan and those nations are going to have to run and get help. And it's going to include who? The Israelites, of which there's only about 70. I'm not even sure why we even call them a nation at this part, because 70 don't make up a nation as far as I know. They're a little clan, they're a little family, but they are the chosen ones, right? They are the people of God, but they're not very many in number. But see, God's not done. God has a plan. God's working that plan to perfection. So chapter 42 opens up with, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? I, I, I love this phrase because it's, it's like, what are you standing there like idiots staring at one another? Go do something, you morons. Now that's my paraphrase, but I'm a dad and I know how dads think and feel. And he looks at his sons and he's going, what? Guys, we need food and I've heard, why haven't you heard that Egypt has food? Get your butts out of Canaan and go get some food. And he's going to send his sons. He says, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down, buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. He, he telegraphs for us that things have gotten pretty dicey there in Canaan. They don't have enough grain. They don't have enough food to feed their animals, to feed their family. And if they don't do something soon, they're going to die. And he has to tell his sons what to do. So what happens? Ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Which brothers? And this is, this is ironic to the nth degree, right? It's the same ten brothers who sold Joseph into slavery who ends up in Egypt. They have to go down to Egypt. Now, do they know Joseph's there? They don't have a clue. They think he's dead. They hope he's dead. But they get sent to Egypt. But notice verse 4, Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother. Why? Because he's the youngest, and he's taken the place of Joseph as the favorite son of Jacob. The text makes that pretty clear, that once he figured his son Joseph is dead, he now elevates his younger brother to that status. Yeah. Yeah, so they're both born to the same mom, and he represents, she's now gone, Rachel's dead, and so there's an att attachment there, right? So he's not going to send him. He's not going to do this again. And it, there's also an inference in these passages that Jacob has kind of woken up, smelled the coffee, and realized, you know, I've had plenty of time to think about this, and I think there's something fishy about the story they gave me about Joseph. I don't know that I trust them. I don't know that what they told me is true. I don't know that they, he's, he's put two and two together, I believe, and realized that they, they really always did hate him. And they just happened to come back without him. And then tell me the story about animals killing him. So he's not letting him go. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Moses, Moses is letting us know that this famine is bigger than we thought. It's, it's far greater in scope. Why? Because that's part of God's plan. God knew it all along. And it says, they came among others. Now, I'm, I've never really look, looked at this and seen this before that I always just pictured, because I've been told so many Sunday school stories as a kid, that it was just these 10 guys who showed up. You know, they just happened to hear, out of all the nations, they just happened to hear and they showed up. And it was just 10 guys meeting the governor, Joseph. 
No, it's nations. They came among the others. They're not coming alone. This is like an avalanche of people coming from all over the known world. Every nation affected has realized that what? Egypt's got food and they're all coming. The nations are coming to Egypt. Why? Joseph. See, that's, that's the plan. Again, God's in part fulfilling the promise that through the descendant of, jo- of Abraham, he would bless the nations. And here it is happening on a pretty major scale, right? Because these are the groups that show up. They're, they're coming from Canaan. This is among many others. But just from Canaan come the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Perizzites, all the ites, right? These are seven nations that populated Canaan at the same time the Israelites were living there. And the Israelites come. So all of these groups, I guarantee on that caravan road, the same road that Joseph traveled with those Ishmaelite traders, are all these people. And they're all making the journey to go buy grain, and they all show up. And that's what makes this story even more amazing. Just imagine hundreds, if not thousands of people coming into Egypt, and they all have to go to Joseph to get what? Grain. And Joseph's going to recognize his brothers. That's, that's incredible, right? Of all those peoples, he's going to somehow, and I think divinely ordain, meet his brothers out of all the people coming in. It says, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, Egypt, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now that should like trigger memory, right? That, that should remind us of what they said that, we're never going to bow down to you, right? Remember, Joseph had two dreams years and years earlier. As a matter of fact, 37 years earlier, he had dreams that, would, that his brothers would one day bow down to him. And now it's happening. This is incredible. Remember, he says, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, this is 37 years earlier. He was 30 years old when he got selected by the Pharaoh to be the second highest man in the land. Seven years of plenty have gone by. Now we're in the famine, and he's now 37 years old. So he's remembering what happened in this dream 20 years earlier. And remember what his brother said? No way. Ain't going to happen. You're a moron. You're an idiot. We're never going to bow down to you. Well, we also know he had a second dream. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and his mom and dad are standing there. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And his dad gets involved and goes, I don't know what you're smoking, but there's no way your mom and I are going to bow down to you. That's crazy. But then, as we said last week, he pondered it and he went, well, maybe, maybe it is true. Maybe something's behind this dream, but now he thinks Joseph's dead. And they're all going to be in for a big surprise. Everybody's bound down to Joseph, including his brothers. See, the dream, interestingly enough, both dreams that Joseph didn't understand at the time, he may have interpreted the cupbearer and the baker's dream, and he may have interpreted Pharaoh's dream, but he didn't fully understand his own dream. He didn't know what it meant. He just knew that there's something significant to it. And it never said that his brothers would bow down willingly or even knowingly, right? It it didn't say that. He just said, you're going to one day bow down to me. Dad, mom, you're going to one day bow down to me, but not necessarily willingly, right? Or even knowing that they were doing it. And that's what makes this story so incredibly ironic is that they're going to bow down to the very person they said they would never bow down to. They just don't know it's him. And next week, they'll find out it's him. So Joseph saw his brothers, and he recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Now, if you're not careful, you can read this story and think that Joseph is being a jerk. Uh, He's well, no, I don't blame him, but that's really not what the passage is telling us. He's, remember, he is, he's been chosen by God. 
He's been spoken to by God. God is speaking through him to Pharaoh, and now he's going to speak through him to his brothers. I believe everything that he says and does is, is the divine will of God. And so he's going to put his brothers, as we'll see, to a major test. He's not being mean to them as much as he's trying to figure out, have you changed? Are you the same 10 guys who sold me into slavery, or, or have the years softened you at all? So he says, where do you come from? And they said, we're from the land of Canaan, and we're here to buy food, right? They just tell the truth. Maybe for the first time in a long time. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. This is important because he immediately knows who they are. I, I don't really understand how, after this long a period of time, how he could recognize his brothers. Remember, 20 years have gone by. He was 17. He's now 37. I think if you went to a 50-year reunion and saw people you haven't seen in a long time, you wouldn't recognize some of them, right? And they wouldn't recognize you. Well, what happened to you? Well, somehow he recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. Now, granted, he's probably dressed in Egyptian clothing. He, he's dressed like the second highest man in the land. He's probably got on the funky headdress like the Egyptians wore. We don't know what he looked like, but they don't recognize him. And that's key to the story. And then it says, Joseph remembered the dreams he dreamed of them. Yeah, I can only imagine. He sees these guys and like memory cores start popping into his head like, oh man, I remember you guys. I remember you, Reuben. I remember you, Judah. I remember what you did to me. I, I'll never forget that moment he remembered. It's like a dream come true. Uh, he not only remembers his dreams, but he remembers how they responded to his dreams. And he's waited 20 years for this. And I, I really think at, the, at, at, at this moment, he's beginning to say, this is what the dream was all about. I'm in power, I have authority, and my brothers are bowing before me. It's just like I dreamed. What's missing? Well, dad and mom. And he realizes that there's more to this. This ain't over yet. God, for some reason, has restored me with my brothers so that I might be restored to my father, my mother, and the rest of my clan. See, his dreams are being validated. Those dreams he had 20 years earlier as a 17-year-old boy are being validated right before his eyes as he, as he watches every one of his brothers bow down. Now, do they know who he is? No. Do they think they're bowing down to Joseph? No, they're bowing down to some Egyptian governor, but they're bowing down. And it's like, man, this is great. I could almost think that if he had an iPhone, he'd have taken a selfie. You know, they're prostrated on the ground. He turns around and, you know, takes, <laughs> takes the picture and later shows it to him. But he didn't have that option. His mistreatment is being vindicated. I love this. God is doing it. N not Joseph. At no point in the story is he vindictive. Now, he puts them through some pretty major tests, but it's not out of vindiction. It's it trying to expose where their heart is. What kind of men are these? And they're going to be repudiated for everything that they've done, not by the hand of Joseph's, but really by the hand of God. And we're going to get to see that God has been working in these men. They are different, not exactly where they need to be yet, but God is not finished with them. And all, all, it's all coming into focus, right? For Joseph, not yet for those guys. And it's going to get worse for them before it gets better. But everything about God's divine plan is starting to come to a, a head, so to speak. And he says to them, you're spies. Now, I've read commentary after commentary, and nobody knows why he chose this accusation. A lot of speculation. I have no clue why he chose to do this, but he basically accuses them of being spies. And my only thought would be that that's like the worst thing you can be in a foreign country, right, is to be a spy. And so he says, you guys are here, you're spies, you've come to see the nakedness, the weakness of the land. You know we've been in a famine, you've come to check out how weak we are because of the famine. But guess what? We're not weak. We're doing perfectly fine. So he calls them spies, and they said, no, 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 wait, no, we're not spies. We're your servants, and we've only come to buy food. And he sets up this tension for these guys that suddenly they're having to defend themselves. Remember, they're not alone. There's a lot of other people there from other lands, far more aggressive, 
far more a threat to Egypt than this small clan of 70, but he accuses them of being spies. You're here to scope out the land. You're here to check up to see if we're weak. And these guys get panicky. We're all sons of one man. We're all one family. We're we're honest men. I love this. We're honest men. And I, I just imagine Joseph trying to keep off a smirk. Like, oh yeah, yeah, you're really honest. You sold me into slavery. I don't know how Joseph kept from blurting out what he knew, but he, he, just, he just kept silent. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Again, we don't know exactly what, why he chose that accusation, but here's what we know he's doing. He's testing their character. You know that God tests your character? Of course you know. It's all those times in your life that you hate and you wish would go away and why are you doing this to me and would you get rid of this? And, and he doesn't, and then you wonder why he doesn't. It's because he's revealing something about you you desperately need to see. And you would see it in no other way than that. It, it, it's, it's like I've told you guys a thousand times, I am so often in God's remedial school for slow learners. I go through the same lessons over and over again. I'm like, God, we have been here. And he's like, yeah, we have. Guess who's got the problem? It's not me, it's you. You don't ever seem to learn. So we're going to go through this yet again. And so these guys are going to get tested. 20 years have passed, right? Joseph is 37 years old. I don't know how old these guys are, but they're 20 years older too. And so they're still having to learn. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Part of that is is almost an inference that they don't recognize the hand of God. They don't expect to see the hand of God. They don't ever expect to see their brother again. But here's what Joseph doesn't know. He really doesn't know them. Remember, two decades have gone by. He has no idea what these guys are really like. He remembers them from the age of 17, 20 years earlier, but he doesn't know their character. So all of this is meant to expose, what are you guys really like? Have you changed? Are you different Have you learned anything over the last 20 years? And are you God-fearing? And the answer is going to be, they're really not. They they don't come fearing God. They fear famine. Um, They fear this governor, this powerful Egyptian governor, but it doesn't appear to be that they fear God. And we're going to see that not a whole lot has changed in their lives after 20 years. He knows their track record, right? What does he know about these guys? everything they ever did. Remember, he was his dad's spy. Part of his job as the favorite son was to spy on all his brothers, which not a fun job to have, but he did it, and he evidently did it well. It says that he knew these things. What did he know? He knew the story of Shechem, and we studied this. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. What's going on here? Well, if you remember the story, Dinah gets raped by a man named Shechem. He's the son of the king. He rapes her, and then they try to convince Jacob and his family to make treaties and alliances with them so that their families could intermarry and so that Shechem could marry the woman he just raped. And Levi and Simeon, sons of Jacob, step into this thing, they agree, they make a covenant with these people and say, the only requirement is you have to get circumcised. All the men get circumcised, and then Simeon and Levi go in and slaughter them all. See, Joseph knew the story. He knew what his brothers had done. He knew their character. It says that they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And then it goes on and says, the other brothers get involved. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, they took their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. All 10 brothers had participated in this affair. And guess who knew it? Joseph. He he knows their history. He knows their track record. And he knows what they did to him. 20 years earlier, they saw him, Joseph, from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. 
And then when they capture him and they throw him in the pits, he was there while they ate lunch and heard them arguing about, should we kill him or should we sell him? He knew this about his brothers. So you can imagine why he's a little skeptical skeptical about their character. Before I reveal myself, I have the opportunity to really find out who these men really are. So what goes on? Back in that pit, he heard his brothers argue, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? What do we gain from that? Why don't we sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him? Let's not literally kill him. Let's just sell him, make some money, and he'll be as good as dead. And we'll never have to see him again. Remember, this was all motivated by jealousy because he was his father's favorite. So these guys show up, he sees them, he recognizes them, and now he begins to test them. He says, no, 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 it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers. I think it's interesting that they now include Joseph, but not by name. He's standing right there. They said, we're 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Who's that talking about? the guy standing right in front of him. I mean, the irony in these chapters is incredible. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you're spies. I'm not changing my mind. I don't care what you say, you're spies. And then he says, by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, by Pharaoh's life, I swear on Pharaoh's life, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. What's he doing? Testing to see, are you going to do to him what you did to me? Are you going to go home, get your brother, bring him here, and then possibly leave him here? Because guess who's taken Joseph's place as the favorite? Benjamin. So he demands that they bring him back. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested. Are you liars or are you truly honest men? Is there truth in you? Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. He throws them into jail for three days. Who else spent three days in jail? The baker and the cupbearer. I don't know if that's where he got this timeline from, but he throws his brother in jail for three days, and you can only imagine what that must have been like. Here are these guys in jail wondering what in the world has just happened. And they begin bickering and arguing about their lot in life. But they're getting a taste of their own medicine. Remember, they threw him in a pit. They, they hated him so much that they sold him into slavery. And now they're getting to experience some of what Joseph has experienced by their own hand. Remember, if they hadn't sold him into slavery, he had never would have been taken by the Ishmaelites to Egypt. He'd never been in Potiphar's house as a slave. He'd never been accused by Potiphar's wife of attempted, attempted rape. Never would have ended up in prison, but he did And now they're getting to see the same thing. Here's what it's like to be misunderstood and mistreated. You're going to feel it. You're going to see my life in a microcosm. This has been my life, guys, because of you. Falsely accused. I didn't do anything either. And yet you sold me into slavery. I was unjustly imprisoned, just like you are. Now you're going to see what it's like. Here's what it's like to live the fruits of your actions. And he lets them stew for three days. And they have to wait on what? God's justice. And I guarantee, because they're men and because they're human, their prayer life shot up. I mean, I I think they're in that prison and all 10 of them are on their knees calling out to Yahweh, Jehovah, save us, help us. You know, because we all become prayer warriors when all hell breaks loose, right? When we don't have any options, we don't have any money in the bank, we don't, we don't know what to do, we become prayer warriors, and I think they're praying, waiting for God to save them. But what happens? The tests. Here the tests begin. A test of what? I think it's a test of their godliness. Are you truly godly men? Are you truly men who worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and your father Jacob? Can they be trusted? Would they prove faithful? Faithful to who? Faithful to Yahweh, faithful to the calling. Are they repentant? Now, we're going to see that these guys are remorseful, but, but you don't see a whole lot of repentance. And there is a difference. Remorse is, I'm sorry I got caught. 
Repentance is, I got caught and I want to change my ways. We don't see that in their lives. Have they been changed? Not really. So Joseph gives them a character assessment test. I hate these things. I, I hate assessment tests. You know, every time you take them, they're a little bit different, but this is one that he came up with, I think, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it, it literally means in the Hebrew to assay. It's, it's, it's what you do with metal. You assay metal. You set it to heat and you burn away and you reveal all the dross, all the impurities. That's what's going on here. He's testing their character. What kind of men are you? How pure are you? Are you still the guys from 20 years earlier or have you mellowed? Have you changed? So he tests them. And he says, one of you has to stay. He changes the rules. He lets them out and he says, okay, I was going to send one of you to go get Benjamin. Now I'm going to send nine of you and one has to stay. Now for that decision to be made, and I think he left it up to them. Can you imagine that? Yeah, draw straws. And I think they're all going, you, no, no, me, no, you, no, I, no, I'm the oldest. I have to go. And they're arguing with who gets to stay. One has to stay. Everyone else can go home and take grain. He's going to allow them to take grain to feed their family. But you got to bring Benjamin back. That's the key. That's the, the linchpin to this whole thing. If you don't bring him back, your brother's going to die. Now, remember, why is this a test? Because they had left him to die at the hands of the Ishmaelites. Would they do the same with this brother? Were they still the same kind of men that they, oh, what's one brother? We got plenty more. You know, sucks to be you, but we're going home and we ain't coming back. What are they going to do? That's why this is a test. And we're going to see that immediately guilt and fear and sorrow comes into their lives. They begin to bicker one another among one another about who's going to stay, who's going to go, who's responsible, who caused this, and all kinds of guilt starts coming up. They feel guilty, right? That's a good thing. Guilt is not a bad thing. But if it doesn't lead to conviction, it's really kind of worthless. Guilt that doesn't produce conviction is not very valuable. It's just painful. And they begin to blame one another. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. You're the, you're the eldest. You, you should have done something. And they begin to go back and think about everything that they did 20 years earlier and how they could have done it differently. They say, in truth, we're all guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. They make the connection back to Joseph. Now, Joseph is standing in front of them. They don't realize it, but they realize that we're in this predicament because of what we, we did 20 years ago. They make that connection. It's why this distress has come upon us. But then they begin blaming one another. Reuben said, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? I'm the one who spoke up and said, don't kill him. Now, I'm also the one that says, why don't we just sell him? But, you know, that's better than killing him, right? You didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Because you didn't listen to me 20 years earlier, here we are. And we don't get a lot of the other conversations, but I guarantee with that many guys in one room under that threat, they're all bickering and blaming and casting shame and guilt on one another. So Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. What's going on here? He's setting up the next test. He's going to let them go home. He's going to keep one of them. It ends up being Simeon one of the guys who helped kill all those Shechemites. The rest of them are going to go, but what he does, they brought money to buy grain. He surreptitiously puts the money back in their bags. They don't know it. And they're going to go home with grain, and unknowingly in every one of their bags is the money they brought to buy that grain. And he's setting them up once again. What's going to happen? Test number two. Joseph gives them their money back. They're leaving, and I think lucky to be alive in their minds. I'm so glad it wasn't me. Sorry about Simeon, but we're going home. And we're going home with grain, and we're going to be able to feed our families. But it's going to look like eventually that they stole the grain. Why? Because they're going to find out that, oh, my gosh, the money's still in our sacks. We never paid. We've been tricked. We, we, we're in trouble. 
Now they're going to learn. They're not going to learn this till they get all the way home. But they're going to find out that they're in trouble, and they know that this must be coming from God. Why is God doing this to us? You ever had that thought go through your mind? God, why are you doing this to me? What have I done to deserve this? And they're starting to make these links that what is this that God has done to us? And they're linking it to what? Their guilt. 20 years earlier that now God is bringing punishment on us. We are getting our just desserts. They're not blaming God. They're realizing this is a divine act of God. Suddenly, Jehovah becomes more important in their lives because they feel his hand of judgment. So they go home. They go to Jacob and they tell him everything that happened. The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us. He was mean. He was unkind to us. They're like little whiny brats. And he took us to be spies. And, and they tell him the story. They tell him what has to happen. We have to bring Benjamin back. And this is going to be the third test. They tell Jacob everything. We got the grain. We have enough grain to feed ourselves for about two years. That's the time period that's going to pass here. They tell the governor's demands, and they're going to refer to Joseph as the governor because that's who they think he, he, he to be. But Joseph, or Jacob is going to say, ain't no way you're taking Benjamin. I will not give in to that demand. I will not give another son to you, moron, so you can take him to Egypt because he may never come back, and he refuses. What he doesn't know is that he's putting his whole family in jeopardy, but he cares so much for Benjamin that he's not willing to do it. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, Joseph, and he's the only one left. Now that had to hit those guys like a brick to the forehead, right? What do you mean he's the only one left? What do we, dog meat? You know, we can hear you. <laughs> but what's he saying? He's my favorite. He replaced Joseph, and I'm not going to lose him. I can't bear to lose yet another favorite son. But he seems to be okay with Simeon, right? Simeon's in jail, and he's like, you ain't going back. And if you don't go back, and if you don't take Benjamin, Simeon's a dead man. But I, I'm okay with that as long as I can keep. This doesn't shine a really pretty light on Jacob, but you can understand Jacob is, I can't lose another son. I can't go through this again. Then chapter 43, the famine was severe in the land. It gets worse. Two years are going to pass. That's how much time goes by. They had eaten all the grain that they had brought from Egypt. Their father said to them, go, we need food. It's going to take two years. He's going to run out of tricks up his sleeve. They no longer have any grain. They can't feed their flocks and their herds. They can't feed their kids, their grandkids, however many they have in that clan of 70. And he finally comes to the point of saying, all right, you've got to go back. Go back. But Judah's going to go, Dad, we can't go back if you don't let us take Benjamin. And he convinces him to let him go. And he says, I will take his place. I, I will be the one to sacrifice my life for Benjamin. I guarantee that he's coming back. So he says, go. Here's the test, guys. What's going on? Jacob's being tested. Is he going to trust God? Two years have gone by. They run, a, run out of grain, run out of options. He orders them to go back, and he's going to have to trust that God can take care of his family. But initially, he's going to say, you can't take Benjamin. But again, Judah convinces him, you got to take him. We got to do this. We got to take him. There's no way I can go back without Benjamin because if we go back without Benjamin, we're all dead men. You'll have one son left, dad. And Jacob's going to finally wake up, understand that he has to do this. It's all part of God's plan. He just doesn't know it. And he doubles the amount of money. He says, take the money that was put back in your bags, take an additional amount of money to buy more grain and oh, take a gift. Take a gift for this governor. I don't know him. I've never met him, but you need to show this guy that you're serious. And here's what it sets up. This is amazing to me. He asked God to show mercy. It's one of the first times in a long time that we've seen Jacob turn back to the God who has spoken to him in dreams and who's, who's blessed him immensely. And he says, he prays a prayer asking God to show mercy on his sons. Why pray that prayer? because he knows his sons need mercy. I think by this time he knows they're guilty of the death of Joseph. 
and he knows that they're not the most godly men in the world, and they're going into the oven there in Egypt, and he says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother, Simeon, and Benjamin, and as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. What's he saying? God, show mercy, but if you choose not to show mercy, I'll be... I'll have to live with it. I'll have to trust that you know what you're doing. If I lose all my sons, so be it. But please bless my sons. Show them mercy. In a time of need, he turns to God, which is what most of us do. And you got to think about the gravity of this. He's sending every one of his sons to an unknown future. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's asking God to show mercy, but he's got no guarantee. But he's powerless. He's hopeless. He can't go with them. He's too old. And so he's going to have to trust God out of food, out of options. And as many days as he has left on earth, which aren't many, he thinks, I have got to trust Jehovah. He remembers the promises. You will make of us a great nation. So I'm going to take all of my heirs and I'm going to send them to Egypt. But what happens? God shows mercy. But how does God show mercy? Through Joseph. This is amazing, guys, to think that The kid who had been betrayed, sold into slavery, hated, is the one who will now show mercy to the 11 brothers. They all return with Benjamin in tow. They're taken to the governor's house, which they immediately think is not a good deal, and they begin to panic. Why do they not think it's a good deal? We show up in town, and immediately the steward for the governor tells us to go to his house. And I think they're thinking the worst, right? He is going to kill us. He's going to take all of our stuff. And they begin to argue once again. They're afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, the governor. It's because of the money, which was replaced in our sacks. He's going to get even with us because we stole the money, but we really didn't steal the money. We didn't do anything wrong. We have been brought in for that so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. I I love this, their, their simplicity of thinking. This guy is the second most powerful man in the nation of Egypt. He lives in a palace. They're standing in the palace, and they think he wants our donkeys. Does he need your donkeys, you idiots? That's not what this is about, but they're in a panic. They they think it's all over. But the steward says, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. He says, I don't know where that money came from. You paid. I got your money. God, your God must have blessed you. Your God must, this is a pagan Egyptian steward of Joseph. And he says, your God must have blessed you because I got your money. I don't know where that money came from. Where did that money come from? Joseph. Joseph has actually blessed his brothers. They just don't recognize it. Then he brings out Simeon, brings him out of jail. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house, so they're all gathered together and Simeon's with them. He gives them water, had their feet washed, and then he gave their donkeys fodder. He didn't take their donkeys, he feeds them. And they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat the bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought it into the house to him, the present that they had with him, and they bowed down again. They prostrate themselves. They lay down on the ground. And so what's going on? Well, Joseph comes home about noon, They're fearful. They've got their present ready. They're hoping that will convince them, man, don't take our donkeys. Don't take our lives. Don't throw us into prison. Please be gracious to us. Show mercy to us. And that's exactly what he does. I'll be real honest. If I was in Joseph's place, it wouldn't have turned out this way. They would have been dead meat. They would have been in prison. I'd taken everything they had. I'd have taken their robes. I'd have taken, I would have done everything I could to seek revenge, but he doesn't. He showers them with grace. He pronounces a blessing on Benjamin. God, be gracious to you, my son. See, he knows that the grace has to come from God, but he is the bestower of it. He's the PVC pipe through which the grace is going to flow. Then he gives them a feast. You imagine the shock? They came thinking he's going to steal everything we have, and then he sits them down at a table and he feeds them, and then he puts them in proper birth order. Like he somehow knows who's the oldest and who's the youngest. And they're, they're petrified. They're amazed. It says the men looked at one another and amazed. And how, 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 did, how does he know this? 
And then portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. This is a final test. Why? He's showing favoritism to the favorite son of Jacob. And they're like, crap, everywhere we go, this happens. How are they going to respond? Well, they're keeping their mouth shuts, right? They don't show any anxiety. They don't show any resentment. They just let him be blessed because they're being blessed beyond belief. They drank and were merry with him. What did Jacob pray? May God show you mercy. What's happening? God is showing them mercy, but through who? Their own brother who they don't even recognize. See, guys, what what jumps out at me in this is that God is blessing you in so many ways through people that you don't recognize as the emissaries of God. Uh, He's blessed your life. I know he has. And so your first question is, I want you to list some specific ways in which God has shown you grace when you didn't deserve it. And if you can't think of anything, I I want to sit down with you because God has blessed you richly. And then why does he do it? Why does he show you grace when you don't deserve it? What's the purpose of that? Why is God showing grace to these brothers when they don't deserve it? I want you to look at the two verses on the front of this hand, your handout, and I want you to think about how does Joseph's life model what these verses say? How can we look at his life and see that he is living this out on a daily basis? And then finally, 11 of the tribes of Israel came from these flawed men. How should that bring us encouragement? See, they're evil, they're wicked, they've done some wicked things, but God is not yet done with them, and God is going to show grace and mercy on them, and God is going to make of them a great nation, not just through Joseph, but through every one of these men. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, passage, these two chapters that are so rich. There's so much going on, Father, that we could spend days, weeks, months just studying these two chapters, but help us to see that you are a God of grace. You're a God of mercy. You do punish us for our sins. You do discipline us, but you do it because you love us. And then you show us your grace and mercy and you forgive us and you restore us and you still use us. But Father, may we also be conduits of your grace to others. And rather than being vindictive and getting back at others or taking out revenge, may may we show grace because we have received grace. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your plan and how you're working it to perfection. We pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.